Hello and welcome to this episode of Irreligiosity 2.0, the One True Podcast, and the only podcast to have its penis stolen by a genital thief. I have personally witnessed this, and I saw them <laughs> shrink dramatically. Uh, this is part two of our fundamentalism Mormon polig episode. Uh, but first, I'd like to go over some iTunes reviews, Matt. Yay! iTunes reviews. Cue the music. I'd like to, but they don't have any more, you fuckers. Oh. Fuck you, assholes. You mean nobody's made any more? Yeah. Review us, you bastards. Review Chuck, mostly. <laughs> you don't like your <laughs> reviews. I guess I've, they've been kind to me. As kind as possible. As kind as I deserve. Under the circumstances. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Uh, so let's skip iTunes reviews, and let's go into, uh, what do we got? Leaky Sphincter, Skunk Dick, what? What the fuck are we calling it? This week, we are calling it, who is our dumb little bastard of the week? Our dumb little bastard. Who is the dumb little bastard of the week? Well, Matt, I have one, uh, candidate. It's, uh, a genital thief from a Central African village. No! Yes, this guy goes around apparently stealing penises. What does he do with them? Does he uh, keep them in a bag? Or? <laughs> I don't know. What would you like do nice with a necklace? bunch of stolen penises? Uh, probably something arty, you know, like a necklace or a belt. Let's see, this is a tra- This is someone who is traveling to the central African village of Taringulu who noticed that many people weren't shaking hands. But she said she soon found out the reason. The day before, a traveler passing through town on a Sudanese merchant truck had, with a simple handshake, removed two men's penises. What? <laughs> Snatch! This is, <laughs> this is a serious problem, Matt. Yoink! Um, did you know that Turingulu is such a small, dusty, peanut-groaning hamlet that it barely has a market? <laughs> for penises? That's, well... They need every penis they have, for God's sakes. As penis ba- snatching was only a city dweller's fear before this. Now <laughs> even the smallest places. Now <laughs> oh, it's moving into the suburbs. Right. As best I could re- reconstruct from witness accounts, the stranger had stopped to purchase a cup of tea at the market. After handing over his money, he clasped the <laughs> vendor's hand. The tea seller felt an electric tingling course through his body and immediately sensed that his penis had shrunk to a size smaller than that of a baby's. <laughs> tea, please. Got your penis. smaller than that of a baby's penis or baby's arm maybe just a baby's his yells quickly drew a crowd somehow in the fray a second man fell victim as well he Uh, got me too (laughs) (laughs) she says as an anthropologist who studies the region i was familiar with the problem of penis snatching apparently this is a big problem in africa oh yeah all us anthropologists we're we know all about this stuff (laughs) (laughs) You, of course, were familiar as an anthropologist with the problem of penis snatching before. They always tell they always tell the undergrad students like, "Watch out, no shaking hands. Just, <laughs> just accept the tea and keep your hands in your pocket." In 1967, an outbreak of coro, the belief that the penis is retracting into the body, overwhelmed hospitals in Singapore. Holy <laughs> shit! Well, what it, what happened to this penis snatcher? Shortly after the disturbance in the Tringula market, members of the armed rebel group that governs the town arrested the traveler and subjected him to a harsh interrogation for his own protection, they told me later. Well, that's, that makes sense. Yeah. I always subject people to harsh interrogations for their own protection. Right. <laughs> Had they left him to the mob, the town's women would have torn the stranger limb from limb. They reason, why the women? <laughs> the men were incapacitated, I, I guess, because of their penis being snatched and the women are all right. pissed off they would they'd be all pissed off the men would have no strength they'd all be crying yeah the women um value those penises right as for the men whose penises were stolen several eyewitnesses assured me that the appendages did indeed shrink dramatically do these guys <laughs> wear no pants in africa there are no fucking pants in africa several, several eyewitnesses. eyewitnesses i saw it <laughs> his penis shrank i can't offer such an intimate eyewitness account myself but I did visit one of the men at his home, and he clearly seemed to be suffering. He lay propped up on one elbow, slack and listless in loose sweatpants, on a woven mat in the shade outside his house. Well, finally he's found some pants. Right. <laughs> but they're loose, so that's why, um, 
That's why the eyewitness could tell because you wear a tight sweatpants or you wear sweatpants. <laughs> Uh, as an anthropologist, didn't she fail in, in her duty to uh, inspect the man's penis? Yeah, this is really uh, second-rate work, i got to tell you. I would let no penis go uh, untracked uh, in my... <laughs> visualized. <laughs> <laughs> penis snatching, they said, was a means of supplying an illicit and lucrative trade in organs. Apparently, people are buying penises right and left. What do you do with it? Cameroonians and Nigerians, people from places where they have multi-story buildings... <laughs> Oh, those Cameroonians. <laughs> They're fancy ways. They're you see how advanced Cameroon is, someone said? It's because they are so strong in commerce of all kinds, including in genitals and scalps. Well, there you go. They're, uh, they're apparently uh, used, they're sold to occult he- healers for use in ceremonies, or else they are quickly fenced back to the victims of penis snatching for a price. How much would you pay to get your penis back? A lot, probably. <laughs> Where's the real money, though, Chuck? I mean, where's the real market for penises? One man who had spent some time living in Cameroon said he had heard of a woman there who was nabbed by airport security while trying to smuggle several penises to the continent inside a baguette. (laughs) Several penises. I know if my penis was snatched, only one baguette would be necessary. Oh, good lord. Yeah, I think the guy got shot who stole the penis. That is just that is justice well served. That well, it was for his protection. <laughs> you cannot go around snatching people's penises, turning them into babies' penises. <laughs> That's yes. Oh, good lord. Um, moving on from babies' penises to baby names. Apparently, in New Zealand, you cannot name your baby Lucifer. What? Why not? Uh, apparently, there's no place for Christ or Messiah either. In New Zealand, parents have to run by the government any name they want to bestow on their baby. And each year, there's a bevy of unusual ones too bizarre to pass the taste test. Like Lance. (laughs) (laughs) That should be on there. (laughs) Apparently, six people wanted to name their child Lucifer. One wanted to name it Messiah, and I think two happened to wanted to name him Christ. Is this real? Matt, um, they also rejected Mafia No Fear for real. That answers your question. Oh, okay. And anal. Come God on, damn anal. It. I wanted I to can't name <laughs> I wanted to name my kid anal. <laughs> it's where he came from. Little <laughs> No, that's, that's little anal. Sense. Get back here. <laughs> oh. Well, how about can you name your kids after like cigarette brands? <laughs> that's okay apparently. You yes. and hedges. <laughs> you can uh name your kid violence. And number 16 bus shelter past muster. <laughs> that's, that's a weird thing to yell across, like, <laughs> the playground. <laughs> oh, my God. Someone wanted to name change his name to Fuck Censorship. <laughs> uh, that, that was in New Mexico, but uh, they ruled against him. Oh, come on. Also, someone wanted to band, um, someone wanted to name their kid the Roman numeral 3. That was banned. You mean... I, I, I? Yes. Do you say it three, or do you say it I, I, I? That's hence the banning. No one knows. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Too confusing. Uh, so that's Skunk Dick Candidate number two. Number three is the son of an old friend here at Irreligiosophy, Chad Hovind. Chad Hovind. I have only limited Chad Hovindology. <laughs> <laughs> Chad, son I- of Kent. Uh, who's, who's still, I believe, in uh, federal penitentiary, 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 something like that. The federal Jail. pen uh, for tax evasion. Uh, his son is uh, trying to sell a book called Godonomics. His his God inspired program for financial freedom. What is God going to do for my financial freedom? Well, let's listen. God has offered his wisdom on so many subjects. Doesn't it make sense that he'd offer wisdom on the principles of economics? Our DVD series explores God's principles, his teachings, and his directions for living a life of liberty, prosperity, and generosity. As of this morning, we are $12 trillion in debt. If you don't know what a trillion dollars is, don't worry, the government doesn't either. $12 trillion is a million million. I'm not quite sure. We're going to have to run this through the computer. 
I'm not quite sure that $12 trillion is a million million. Are you sure? I got a calculator. I'm pretty sure he's fucked up on his math there. Yeah, don't worry, though, Matt, because God is at the head of this. He'll, he'll correct any mistakes that dipshit Chad Hoven makes. Did you know this morning the public debt is $16 trillion? That's a million million. <laughs> don't worry if you don't know what it, the $12 trillion means. I don't either. <laughs> All right, let's continue. Godonomics is a fun, engaging, and fact-filled journey into God's wisdom on work and money. Godonomics is God wanting us to experience liberty, prosperity, and generosity. Godonomics offers God's perspective for the economic decisions of an individual, a family, and even a nation. What would God say to FDR? What would he say to Clinton? What would he say to Barack Obama? What would he say to George Bush? Stop spending tomorrow's money today. Godonomics explores the biblical teachings that demonstrate how God wants us to live a life of freedom to serve Him, to provide for ourselves, and to bless others. To learn more about what the Almighty God says about how He wants us to achieve a life of liberty, prosperity, and generosity, go to Godonomics.com. What would God say to FDR? What would God say to Bill Clinton? <laughs> Why doesn't God fucking say it himself? Why does he need Chad Hovind to say it, Matt? I want to know what God would say to Bill Clinton. God is like the most piss-poor communicator in the world. Bill Clinton comes and goes... God doesn't say a fucking thing to him. But now, Chad Hoven comes along <clears throat> and says to um, FDR, who's, who's been dead for fucking 60 years, and Barack Obama, stop spending tomorrow's money today. Like it never occurred to them. Never occurred to them before Chad Hoven. That's, you have to tell Obama that? That's what he wants to tell Obama? That's what God wants to tell Obama. Oh, that's what God wants, that's right. God also, wants to stop spending tomorrow's money today. he's the Antichrist. Just <laughs> Just passing that along. He's probably already talking to him all the time, then, if he's the Antichrist. Well, Matt, those are our three skunked candidates. I'm going to have to go with Chad Hovind. You're going with Chad Hovind? Yes. It's been a while I, since a Hovind has taken the skunk-dick crown. It's, it's, it's hard for me because, you know, penis stealing is very near and dear to my heart. As an anthropologist. Uh, exactly. But <laughs> <laughs> what's your final Sorry. call? Sorry, where, where were we going with this? <laughs> your candidate for skunk dick of the week. But I have a final candidate for this week's dumb little bastard. He is Dean Saxton, the preacher of righteousness to the sinners like you. The actual skunk dick of the week is a super cool college kid who tells women you deserve rape because whores. You got it? That's the math. It is a rape, of course. It's a million million. So why why do these women deserve rape, Matt? This is what I want. Well, it was Sexual Assault Awareness Month at the U of A campus, University of Arizona. That so month, he, uh, by the way, pisses off conservatives nationwide. Right. What do you mean I can't sexually assault people? <laughs> or, not, or am I just supposed to be aware of I'm sexually assaulting people? Every day is Sexual Assault Awareness Day. So this guy, Dean Sexton, he's a uh, self-ordained, quote, street preacher. He decided to stand around on campus with a, with a sign that said, you deserve rape. It's bold, Chuck. It's a bold move. <laughs> so it's just to random passersby, apparently. Just people who randomly pass by deserve rape. No one else. Right. His sermon was meant to convey that if you dress like a whore and you act like a whore, you're probably going to get raped. Quote, I think the girls that dress and act like it, they should realize that they do have partial responsibility because I believe that they're pretty much asking for it. Like Jesus said, love one another and rape whores. Yes. Go your way, sin no more, and rape a few whores. I invite you to uh, feast upon his Twitter feed so you can enjoy his rampant homophobia, his transphobia, his hatred of Muslims, and basically your garden variety young male misogyny. Uh, yeah, God hates feminists. There will come a time when the sword will be put to the heathen. You're out of control because a man doesn't control you. Y-O-U-R. That's the most offensive part of that statement. Right. His Lack grammar. Lack of apostrophe. 
Although uh, it is Twitter. You only get 140 characters. <laughs> that may be it. Um, can we put an end to this partial responsibility garbage? Uh, women theoretically should be able to walk down the street completely naked without having fear of being raped. Yeah. It is 100% the fault of the rapist and 0% the fault of a woman. She can dress however the fuck she wants to. Jesus Christ, there's no invitation to commit a crime by the way you dress. So, can we can we put an end to that? I mean, I, I, I can't no. believe in 2013 we're still fucking talking about this. Jesus. We're still doing victim blaming. So this guy wants uh, people to wear a burqa, apparently. I guess. Men and women, because, you know, if men dress like whores, they're probably going to get raped, too. And they would deserve it. And they should bear partial responsibility for their torn anus. Right. There were some counter-protesters with him, though. Oh, yeah? There were a couple of guys holding a sign up next to him that said, You deserve grape. Excellent. Yes. <laughs> you deserve grape. And then That no- guy and the guy who holds up the sign at the Westboro uh, Baptist Church protest that says beer, that's my guy. Like, <laughs> he just gets next to him. Just beer. Just random protest sign that says beer. Nothing better. Nothing better. Nothing better. So, um, yeah, the guy who in 2013 believes that uh, women invite rape by how they dress gets the Leaky Sphincter Skunk Dick of the Week Dumb Little Bastard Award. Yay. Hooray. All right. Let's move on to the meat of the podcast, and let's finish this uh, fundamentalist topic, shall we? Mm, Yes. In 1928, John W. Woolley dies, and so Lauren Woolley, his son, kind of takes over and forms uh, a council of friends. So this is he's he's got seven of his buddies. They make up a quorum of seven apostles. So this includes future uh, fundamentalist leaders: J. Leslie Broadbent, John Y. Barlow, Joseph W. Musser. You notice how oh. all these guys use their fucking middle initials? <laughs> Broadbent. We're going to hear about him later. Yeah, but Jay Leslie went with first initial instead of middle initial. Yeah, I get. Yeah, I probably would have. I don't know what J stands for, but I probably would have gone with it instead of Leslie. <laughs> right. It's got to be. Is gotta it be, Julie? Is it? Got <laughs> to be more masculine than Leslie. Why did uh, you give me two girl first names? <laughs> son, Guess I'll I, go with Leslie. I really wanted a daughter. Uh, so now. Now he's got prominence. Now Lawrence C. Woolley has prominence, right? He is the head of the Council of Friends. And he comes out with a second account of the revelation uh, that occurred in 1886. Why does everything they do sound gay? The Council (laughs) of Friends, people with their mouth open in front of them, he teaches to the contrary. Uh, Maybe it's just you, Matt. It could be. So here's, here's the 1929 account. And you'll, you'll notice a few differences. Now, note, too, in 1912, that was, what, 26 years after the supposed events? Now, in 1929, we are at 43 years after the supposed events. And the 1929 account, you might be surprised, is far more detailed. Far more detailed than the 1912 account. So, um, better records. It's actually a lot longer, too. So he's talking about how a bunch of people are asking John Taylor, including uh, George Q. Cannon, Hiram B. Clausen, Franklin S. Richards, to write kind of a manifesto that would meet the objections urged by the the brethren, right, who uh, want to give up some sort of concession to uh, the government. So George Q. Cannon says, you know what, President Taylor, why don't you take the matter up with the Lord, and we'll talk about it in the morning. So, uh... That evening, I was called to act as guard during the first part of the night, notwithstanding the fact that I was greatly fatigued on account of three days' trip I had just completed. The brethren retired to bed soon after nine o'clock. The sleeping rooms were inspected by the guard, as was the custom. President Taylor's room had no outside door. The windows were heavily screened, so that's important. There's no other way to get in, so it had to be Joseph Smith. And they were always inspected by the guard, as yeah. it was the custom. It's much like the monks who copy the Bible and... No mistake can be made. Exactly. <laughs> Sometime after the brethren retired, and while I was reading the Doctrine and Covenants, <laughs> so now he's now he's added the uh, crucial like detail I do. that he's fucking studying the scriptures. I was suddenly attracted to a light appearing under the door leading to President Taylor's room, and was at once startled to hear the voices of men 
talking there. There were three distinct voices, so now there's one more voice in there.、Oh. I was bewildered because it was my duty to keep people out of that room, and evidently someone had entered without my knowing it. I made a hasty examination and found the door leading to the room bolted as usual. I then examined the outside of the house and found all the window screens intact. While examining the last window and feeling greatly agitated, a voice spoke to me saying, Can't you feel the spirit? Why should you worry? Now, does that、oh, sound right? Oh, they're so gay. Does that, <laughs> does that sound right to you, Matt? You are supposed to be guarding the fucking door. You hear three voices inside.、You're, my first instinct would be to pound on the door and say, What's going on? Right. What, what he fucking、no. does is, Oh, nope, it's locked. Oh, the windows look okay. Oh, okay. I'm all right. We're good. He went outside and got. He got into something. Somebody was giving him the spirit. <laughs> Don't worry about it. It's all men, too. There are no women in any of these revelations. No, where are all the women at? At this time, I returned to my post and continued to hear the voices in the room. They were so audible that all,、uh, although I did not see the parties, I could place their positions in the room from the sound of the voices. So this guy's got a fucking satellite dish for his ear. Oh, he's like Daredevil. He can fucking triangulate and pinpoint where they are in the room. The three voices continued until about midnight when one of them left and the other two continued. One of them I recognized as President John Taylor's voice. I called Charles Burrell and we both sat up until 8 o'clock the next morning. When President Taylor came out of his room at about 8 o'clock the morning of September 27th, 1886, we could scarcely look at him on account of the brightness of his person. So now it's not just glowing, now they can't even fucking look at him. It's so bright. <laughs> Oh, wait. Are these, are these accounts like changing over time? <laughs> yeah, he, he'll get to that. He'll address that criticism later, Matt. You、He's, never see that happen with like folk tales or legends. Or... So John Taylor walks out of the room, amazingly right face. He stated, Brethren, I've had a very pleasant conversation all night with Brother Joseph. I said, Boss, who is, <laughs> who is the man that was there until midnight? He asked, What do you know about it, Lauren? I told him all about my experience. He said, Brother Lauren, that was your Lord. So now Jesus is there too. Not just Joseph Smith, it's fucking Jesus is in the room. We had no breakfast, but assembled ourselves in a meeting. President Taylor called the meeting to order. He had the manifesto that had been prepared under the direction of George Q. Cannon read over again. He then put each person under covenant that he or she would defend the principle of celestial or plural marriage. And that they would consecrate their lives, liberty, and property to this end, and that they would personally sustain and uphold that principle. By that time, we were all filled with the Holy Ghost. President Taylor and those present occupied about three hours up to this time. After placing us under covenant, he placed his finger on the document, his person rising from the floor about a foot or 18 inches. What? <laughs> Now, I'm get, you know, did the document also float up? A foot or 18 inches, or was it just his fucking feet that kind of came out from underneath him and they floated up? It doesn't make、I've、any sense. I've seen Chris Angel do this. It's just like <laughs> you go up on your tippy toes and then one foot covers the other. He just has freakishly large feet.、Uh, and with countenance animated by the Spirit of the Lord and raising his right hand to the square, said, Sign that document, never. I would suffer my right hand to be severed from my body first. Sanction it, never. I would suffer my tongue to be torn from its roots in my mouth before I would sanction it. I guess it is me that reads the gayness into all this. <laughs> <laughs> he is、uh, floating above the air, a foot or 18 inches, saying, you know, never, never will I sign this. Never will I sanction it. Fuck you. After that, he talked for about an hour and then sat down and wrote the revelation which was given him by the Lord upon the question of plural marriage. Why didn't he write it when he was in the fucking room with him? Oh, he couldn't reach a pen because he was floating. He was <laughs> floating around the room. Writes it down the next day. That makes any sense. Then he talked to us for some time and said, Some of you will be handled and ostracized and cast out for the church by your brethren because of your faithfulness and integrity to this principle. And some of you may have to surrender your lives because of the same. But woe, woe unto those who shall bring these troubles upon you. In parentheses, Three of us were handled and ostracized for supporting and sustaining this principle. There are only three left who were at the meeting mentioned Daniel R. Bateman, George Earl, and myself. So far as I know, those of them who have passed away all stood firm to the covenants entered from that day to the day of their deaths. After the meeting referred to, President Taylor had L. John Nuttall write five copies of the Revelation. He called five of us together Samuel Bateman, Charles H. Wilkins, George Buchanan, John W. Woolley, and myself. He then set us apart and placed us under covenant that while we lived, we would see to it that no year passed without children being born in the principle of plural marriage. 
We were given authority to ordain others if necessary to carry this work on. They, in turn, to be given authority to ordain others when necessary, under the direction of the worthy senior by ordination, so that there should be no cessation in the work. He then gave us each a copy of the Revelation. You're one of those children, Chuck. Uh, yeah, well, no. My dad was a monogamous. He's, he's uh, oh. still a monogamous. Well, but still, the principle. The principle applies. <laughs> uh, you'd have to go to my other relatives to get children born in the principle. I am only one of the five now living, and so far as I know, all five of the brethren remain true and faithful to the covenants they entered into and to the responsibilities placed upon them at that time. During the eight hours we were together, and while President Taylor was talking to us, he frequently arose and stood above the floor, and his countenance and being were so enveloped by light and glory that it was difficult for us to look upon him. Amazing that he didn't remember any of this shit in the 1912 statement. He didn't remember President Taylor flying about the room. <laughs> you don't fucking remember someone <laughs> levitating a foot above the room and fucking shining with the glory of the sun? Just slips his mind. But he remembers it 20 years later. He stated that the document referring to the manifesto was from the lower regions. He stated, ah, you're <laughs> killing me. <laughs> That's not gay, Matt. He stated I know, but it's funny. Many of the things he had told us we would forget, and they would be taken from us, but they would return to us in due time as needed, and from this fact we would know that the same was from the Lord. This has been literally fulfilled. Many of the things I forgot... But they are coming to me gradually, and those things that come to me are as dear as on the day on which they were given. So you see, Matt, he addresses that. That's oh. why he forgot it, okay. but it's come back to him. So he remembers in 1929, the day that happened 43 fucking years ago, better than he did in 1912. Hey, now asshole, that, I th that is not how memories work. Now that I think about it, he was flying around the room. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I was personally ordained to continue plural marriage. It just slipped my mind. But I remember it now, clear as day. Oh, lower regions. President Taylor said the time would come when many of the saints would apostatize because of this principle. He said, one half of this people will apostatize over the principle for which we are now in hiding, yea, and possibly one half of the other half, rising off the floor while making this statement. He also said the day... What's the math on that? <laughs> The day will come when a document similar to that manifesto then under consideration would be adopted by the church, following which apostasy and whoredom would be rampant in the church. Sweet. That's pretty descriptive of Mormons today. Yeah. They're all apostasy. Uh, the, <laughs> the whores are rampant in the state of Utah. He said that in the time of the seventh president of this church, the church would go into bondage both temporally and spiritually, and in that day, the day of bondage, the one mighty and strong spoken of in the 85th section of the Doctrine and Covenants would come. Among many other things stated by President Taylor on this occasion was this, quote, I would be surprised if 10% of those who claim to hold the Melchizedek priesthood will remain true and faithful to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ at the time of the seventh president, and that there would be thousands that think they hold the priesthood at that time, but would not have it properly conferred upon them. Now that's a reference, obviously, you don't get that in the 1912, because this is after the seventh president, right? This is now the Heber J. Grant was the seventh president. So he's referencing Heber J. Grant made a, a change in how you confer the priesthood. Uh, they used to lay on hands and give priesthood, and then you would be given the priesthood, and then you'd be ordained to an office. And so it was a big deal of the fundamentalists that Heber J. Grant did away with conferring the priesthood. He just ordained them to the office because the office held the priesthood, right? So he's now talking in this retrodiction, this retro prophecy about this uh, something that happened in the 1920s or 30s. It had to be in the 20s, it was 1929. So this has happened in the 20s. I think the president after Hebrew Grant reversed that. So now they give the priesthood and the office. But that's what he's talking about there. And let me tell Talk you too, go ahead. I'd just like to point out that you said on the day of bondage, the one mighty and strong would come. <laughs> I didn't say anything. I just kept my mouth shut. I, you know, that prophecy is also very uh, it's key. I was taught that multiple times when I was growing up um, about the one mighty and strong. And that prophecy um, that's in Section 85 of the Doctrine and Covenants, that's actually Joseph Smith. So let's look that up. This is uh, a revelation given through Joseph Smith, the prophet, at Kirtland, Ohio, November 27, 1832. 
I'll start with 6, verse 6. It was 85, verse 6 of Doctrine and Covenants. Yea, thus saith the still small voice, which whispereth through and pierceth all things. And oftentimes it maketh my bones to quake, while it maketh manifest, saying, And it shall come to pass that I... The Lord God will send one mighty and strong, holding the scepter of power in his hand, clothed with light for a covering, whose mouth shall utter words, eternal words, while his bowels shall be a fountain of truth. <laughs> this, this what? <laughs> to set in order the house of God, and to arrange by lot the inheritances of the saints whose names are found, the names of their fathers, and of their children, enrolled in the book of the law of God. While that man who is called of God and appointed and putteth forth his hand to steady the ark of God shall fall by the shaft of death, like as a tree that is smitten by the vivid shaft of lightning. I've had my bowels be a fountain, but not of truth. My bowels are a continual, unceasing outpouring fountain of truth. Mine are a fountain of diarrhea. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the, that's the prophecy. And that um, prophecy is key to fundamentalists also because they'll point to that and say, hey, the church gave up polygamy. It gave up uh, certain temple ordinances. They changed the priesthood garments. They allowed black people to have the priesthood. They gave up Adam God. And so clearly the church is out of order. And so the, in that day, some one mighty and strong will come and organize the church and put it back in order. That's has, this, has this one come? Well, uh, I think Lauren Woolley may have claimed to have been the one mighty and strong independent fundamentalists are still waiting. It's like the Messiah for the Jews. We're still waiting for the one mighty and strong to come and set ah. the house of God. Uh, I would like to point out, Matt, that as leader of the Mormon fundamentalists, Lauren Woolley uh, claimed to uh, have been visited by a number of angels and resurrected beings, including Jesus, Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, John Taylor, Joseph F. Smith, his father, oh, both the Smiths, one of the three Nephites, whose name was Nephi, <laughs> And a Lamanite prophet. <laughs> Wait, he got Nephi, but not the Nephi or Nephi? No, one of the three Nephites. So the three Nephites are like John the Beloved, who's immortal. Oh. They were promised. They said, what do you want to do? And they, well, we want to come. We want to stay here until you return. And so they're walking around the earth right now. So one of the three Nephites visited uh, Lauren Woolley, apparently. So uh, prior to his death, Woolley appointed J. Leslie Broadbent as a first elder and his successor. Um, I think they started the Short Creek community down in Arizona. They're trying to, again, get away from the city and, and form their own little community kind of in a remote area. Uh, that, that started after his death, which... In 1935, that's right. He which died we're in, jumping ahead, but... He died in uh, 34, I think, and in, in, yeah. in 35, Short Creek started. I think Broadbent died in... in 35, didn't he? He did. He did. March 16th, 1935. And then you get a little split... I want to fast forward a little bit to 1945. These were the raids, um, the Short Creek raids. So it's crucially important. During this time, in the 20s and 30s, um, Joseph W. Musser was criticizing the church, criticizing Heber J. Grant, criticizing Wilford Woodruff for signing the manifesto. He put out a, a magazine called Truth. I remember my parents had bound copies of this on the bookshelf when I was growing up. Um, and I'd read it, and they'd have all these awesome quotes um, I'm like, well, that totally proves fundamentalism, and there'd be no footnotes, or it would be. I'd go to a footnote and it'd say audio recording in author's possession. I'm like, fuck you. <laughs> Does me no good whatsoever. Anyway, they're saying that manifesto was a uh, document from Satan. Blah 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 blah. So they get rounded up. A bunch of these ten, fifteen of these fundamentalist church leaders, polygamists, get rounded up in a raid in 1945. They lasted. Four months. They're put in jail, lasted four months. They sign a document, which is a fundamentalist manifesto. It says, to whom it may concern, the undersigned officers and members of the so-called fundamentalist religious group do hereby declare as follows, that we individually and severally pledge ourselves to refrain hereafter from advocating, teaching, or countenancing the practice of plural marriage or polygamy in violation of the laws of the state of Utah and of the United States. The undersigned officers of the religious group above referred to further pledge ourselves to refrain from solemnizing plural marriages from and after this date, contrary to the laws of the land. Signed, John Y. Barlow, I. W. Barlow, J. W. Musser, Albert E. Barlow, A. A. Timpson, R. C. Allred, Edmund F. Barlow, Joseph Lyman Jessup, Oswald Brainick, David B. Darger. So, after 20 years of criticizing Wilfred Woodruff, Joseph F. Smith, Heber J. Grant, 
these fuckers last four months in jail and sign their own manifesto so they can get out. What do they do? They go <laughs> home and they continue fucking living plural marriage and solemnizing new plural marriages until the day they die. Like you do. <laughs> <laughs> Again, you know. Oh, you you assholes caved into persecution. I'll throw them in jail. Whoa, 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 whoa. Well, where do I sign? <laughs> where do I fucking sign? Oh, God. That would have been me. I would have been the weakest polygamist <laughs> in the lot. Where do I sign? Who can I give up? What can I do? That was the less known 1945 Short Creek Raid. There was a uh, more well-known 1953 Short Creek Raid. and uh, That's Matt, right. I the- think you did research on that. I did. There were uh, there were raids in thirty five and forty four. Those were those were nothing. Those were uh, small fries. I say nothing would compare to the raid of nineteen fifty three. Nineteen fifty three raid, by the way, another seminal event in fundamentalist history. I was lectured on this uh, nineteen fifty three raid also in Sunday school when I was growing up. Oh, way, I can't all wait. This to- stuff, all this stuff I heard. I heard about the eighteen eighty six revelation. I heard about. Lawrence C. Woolley. I heard about John W. Woolley. I heard about Joseph Smith appearing to Lawrence. Oh, by the way, I didn't bring up, I believe in 1928, uh, Joseph Smith uh, was buried in Nauvoo, Illinois, and uh, his bones were exhumed and uh, I think reburied by the um, cooperation maybe between the, the LDS church and the RLDS. And so they took out his bones, handled his skull. They took out Hiram's bones, handled his skull. So the claim that Joseph Smith was resurrected was a resurrected being and shook people's hands in 1886, put to rest in 1928 when the bones were exhumed. How can you be a resurrected being and have your bones in the ground? That wasn't Jesus? Didn't wasn't it just the linen what was left after he got resurrected? Yeah, Jesus Jesus and Joseph are different though. Joseph leaves his bones behind. <laughs> Jesus' bones are – I'd make the worst apologetic ever. <laughs> Joseph was born a mortal man. Oh, there you go. Jesus had to Jesus, rape. Jesus essentially cleaned up after himself. Joseph Smith just all sloppy right. shit, left all his bones right. and shit in there. It was like the odd couple. Matter of fact, that was a, uh, <laughs> that was a show that used to be on, but it got canceled after uh, Joseph and Jesus. The odd couple. Jesus Christ, Joseph, <laughs> clean up your dishes. Tell me about the 1953 Short Creek, Arizona raid. Okay, so a little, a little back info. Um, so that, Short Creek. That was not enough back info. I just fucking talked for an hour. <laughs> the back info on Short Creek. Oh, oh yeah. Community right. of Short Creek. Right, right, right. So uh, you might it's it's used to be located in Short Creek, Arizona. Now that area. Because of the short creek raids, they eliminate any ties, you know, to that name. Um, they changed the name of the town to Colorado City on the Arizona side and Hilldale, Utah. Which guess which side that's on? New Mexico, the New Mexico side. So you, we were saying um, this this community basically started after the death of Joseph Leslie Broadbent. So I guess his first name wasn't Julie or something <laughs> else. It was Joseph, but he decided to go with Jay Leslie. Jay Leslie Broadbent, you know, he was only um, like 44 when he died. Yeah, he died of pneumonia. You know, I always think of these like religious leaders of like the ones we have today, just like these old wrinkly, like crabby, like those old guys in the Muppets always up there. Right. You'll never get another young prophet of the LDS church because – it's it's by how long they've fucking been in a quorum. Right. But, you know, the, when it restarts, when you branch off, then you got a n- number of young people, right? Lauren Woolley now has a council of friends with a bunch of young people. So Jay Leslie Broadbent, by the way, one fat fucker. That guy is ugly. I don't know how he got a single wife. There is there's somebody out there for everyone. If you're listening to this podcast, there's someone out there for you. Maybe two. You may have to go to fucking <laughs> Hilldale, Utah. But there's right. someone there for you. So they split. Um, let's see. After the death of Joseph W. Musser, the community split into two groups: the FLDS Church, the Fundamental Church of Jesus Christ Latter Day Saints, which stayed in Short Creek, and the Apostolic United Brethren, which moved to uh, Bluffdale, Utah. Maybe we'll get to them. Yeah, that was um, Rulin Allred, I think. What happened was Joseph W. Musser 
ordained Rulin C. Allred to uh, the little council of friends uh, over the objections of several others. And so that uh, action, I believe, caused the split. So Rulin went to Bluffdale and formed the Apostolic United Brethren Church under his leadership, and the rest of them stayed kind of in... I think there's a Kingston group. There's uh Who took it over after Broadbent? Um, after Broadbent died... After Broadbent, Musser split off into the Apostolic United Brethren, right? It begins after Broadbent dies, under Barlow and Musser... They split off into the FLDS, and those those stayed in Short Creek and the Apostolic Brethren. They went to Bruffdale. That's right. Under and Roland there was Allred. a succession dispute between Charles Eldon Kingston and John Yates Barlow, which led to the Kingston clan. And they're in, I think, Salt Lake City. They own a lot of businesses. They have a lot of money. Nice. And um, yeah, so then we're left with um, Short Creek under Barlow. And then the Short Creek. Uh, community split into two. Um, one, I think, a little more liberal than the other one, like slightly more liberal. Than, like one <laughs> of them doesn't marry underage children. <laughs> and the other one does. Um, uh, but yeah, so they're they're like, aren't they like across the street from each other or something? Anyway. Yeah, yeah. I think the I am a I got to go through that town one of these days when I'm camping down yeah. something. Centennial Park, maybe that was it. The Centennial Park group uh, split off against the Hildale group, or et cetera, et cetera. I don't I tell you the truth. I don't understand a whole lot of this. There are there are these groups that emerge from this split, and they keep splitting off. So there's a Kingston group, the Apostolic United Brethren. There's the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ, Centennial Park group. Uh, there's the LeBarons, I think, off of Mexico, Lafferty. The LeBarons actually ended up murdering Rulin C. Allred in 1977. But the the largest, I think, the Apostolic United Brethren and the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ are the largest organized church, and they probably have about eight to 10,000 members each. But independently, the, the ones that aren't affiliated, like my parents, are the largest group, probably, with about ten to 15,000. Unaffiliated. And don't claim any like the Apostolic United Brethren have a fucking temple in Mexico and an endowment house in Utah. So you could go in and go into it like a little temple ceremony in the Apostolic United Brethren. They have the little fundamentalist endowment house. Oh, let's do a field trip. <laughs> you think we get past the temple interview? <laughs> but we'll people, just hold hands and the fundamentalists who don't claim affiliation to any of these groups, I think, are the largest. Um, than any of the affiliated. Anyway, that's our well, confused rendition of the fucking fundamentalist groups of Utah and uh, Arizona. Yeah, we're going to... Once again, I'm going to need a flowchart. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we'll give you a link. There's this massive Wikipedia flowchart. It's very confusing. Well, so you get all these polygamous, fundamentalist Mormons gathering in Short Creek, Arizona, right? Yes. But, the, but not only the state, but also the church... <laughs> They did not forget those polygamists. Um, you know, the church is still struggling with its own relationship to plural marriage, and they put pressure on Utah and Arizona authorities to prosecute them for flouting state laws because part of Short Creek was on Utah's side of the border. Right. So they're, they are um, – they're bothered by this stuff because they've given it up, and by association now and, – and it still happens – even today, you know, a polygamist is in the news. Immediately, there's like a statement from the church, or someone's interviewing some church official. <laughs> hey guys, this isn't us. We're not polygamists anymore. Um, but every time it pops up in the national uh, discourse, the Mormon Church gets dragged in along too. And and I think this this is where Heber J. Grant runs afoul of the polygamist. I think it's claimed anyway under his leadership. He sent out um, people to. Uh, write down license plate numbers at fundamentalist gatherings so they could be excommunicated, and then he'd share that with uh, law enforcement officials, and they'd go and make these raids. So this raid, the big raid of of uh, fifty three, you ready for this, Chuck? Yeah, Heber J. Grant, by the way, is dead by this time, so he wasn't responsible. We can't lay it at his feet. Okay, I want to, but <laughs> he was Fine. kind of he was kind of a dick. <laughs> So on July 26, 1953, that was the day of the raid, 102 Arizona State Police officers and members of the Arizona State National Guard, they entered the community of Short Creek, Arizona, 
Um, so the day before the raid, though, they all got together to go over their plans and organizing the teams. And they wanted to keep the raid unnoticed, you know, like you do. So they decided to launch their uh, their offensive from a whole bunch of different places, some of them as far away as 350 miles. Jesus. So, so keep in mind, too, that this is a mostly law-abiding community. They keep to themselves. They're just kind of yeah, living a their polygamous yeah. lifestyle in blatant violation of state and national <laughs> laws. <laughs> So they planned to get to converge on Shore Creek at 4 a.m. on a Sunday morning, and um, they came with 122 indictments and then a whole bunch of extra blank warrants just for whatever came up. They had blank warrants? They had blank warrants. That's awesome. So the surprise attack failed, though, because um, somebody warned them. Somehow they found out about this, and uh, as, they, as the police and – It was the a resurrected Star- Joseph Smith that warned them. It was. His bones came cruising down the street. That's why, and that's why his bones were left behind. <laughs> Specifically for the 1953 Short, Short Creek Raid. So they, they come into town, and three dynamite explosions went off and uh, just echoed against the cliff. And basically, that's, you know, that was a signal they prepared. Hey, they're here. So they started searching the houses, and they only found the women and the children. They're all cowering you know, under their beds or wherever they do that. And uh, all the men, guess where the men were? Uh, watching television. They they could have been, I suppose. No, they're having a giant orgy. Uh, <laughs> that was my no. second guess. <laughs> they were all in the schoolyard. They assembled in the schoolyard all together. They put on their best Sunday clothes, and they were singing God Bless America. It was like that scene from uh, Red Dawn, the original oh my, version. Oh, my God. God Bless America. And then they shot them all. Um, <laughs> well, they had blank warrants, so. <laughs> <laughs> he was resisting, resisting. Um, so an article that was reporting. By the way, there was a, there was this did not get good press. I mean, I'll get back to that in a minute, but they called it they called it hunting rabbits with an elephant gun. Um, so 122 adults were served warrants. The men were arrested. They were sent to jail in uh, Kingman, which is in Arizona. Um, and most of the women were forcibly sent away to Phoenix, and their children were placed in state custody and uh, given to foster homes. Some of those children never returned to their families. Other children, it took uh, it took years to be returned. Um, but the pictures of the raid and the shots of like crying children being ri- you know yes. ripped from their parents. Yes, this, you know, this went nationwide, and so you have. You have this uh, community who's really, you know, other than their wacky religious beliefs um, and and passing those on, I suppose, to their children, and, and they'll grow up and believe wacky stuff, and um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they're not harming the outside world. Perhaps, I don't know if they take it, like right now, I think what they do is they don't have marriage licenses for their second, third, fourth wives, and so they get married to them, and then they, they become single uh, women basically they crank out kids and they go right over to the welfare office because they're single mothers <laughs> and so so it's uh, on the state I, I'm not sure they did it back then but uh, what you'd created now was you've taken all the men away so they can't earn any money you have placed all the children in foster care and the women now uh, have to either learn new professions to take care of themselves or you know enter the workforce somehow, or the state has to take care of them. So it was massively expensive, not only to design this raid and carry it out and all the manpower, but now you have to pay for every single child that you've confiscated and, and support most of the women. And support all the men that you've put in jail now. They're eating and clothed and fed off of state expense. Right, the... The government leaders, they claimed that they were – one of their claims was they were acting on behalf of the state's taxpayers. Right. Um, other area residents were resentful of the increase in the yes, school taxes. Of course. Protect the fundamental children. <laughs> oh. and on so they're telling that, the government, there's something right. for us. You're, you're absolutely right. They had uh, pictures and press. Um, they'd taken these pictures and they went nationwide of children being taken out of the arms of their mothers, reaching for them, crying, uh, just horrible scenes. And this caused two th- two things, basically. One, an outpouring of, of support for the uh, fundamentalists, which otherwise they wouldn't have received, right? <laughs> They're crazy religious people. 
the assistant journey, attorney general that was involved in short Ukraine, he called it a uh, – he said it was a white slave factory, and no woman has escaped this community for at least 10 years. They're forced to submit to men old enough to be their grandfathers. Yeah, I don't know what the rate of underage marriage was in the Short Creek community. That, I'm sure, was a problem. I suppose I should add that to the list of illegal things that they were doing. Uh, and you got to remember, you know, Joseph Smith, I think, married people as young as 16, maybe, maybe even younger, maybe 14. And I think they justify that practice by pointing to Joseph Smith. So absolutely, underage marriage, there's no excuse for that. You can, you know, you can't, you can't consent to that relationship. Um, but the number two thing that it did was it essentially caused the community to cohere together uh, in an unprecedented fashion and be extremely distrustful of government officials and outside influence. Yeah, yeah. And it was the other polygamists saw it as a warning. Uh, right. And they started being taught to keep the secrets about their father and multiple mothers. Right. Um, Dorothy Allred Solomon, I don't know, part of the Allred clan. She wrote a book about growing up in you know, and her and the effect of the short graves on her life. I believe she lived right across the street from us in Park City for a while. Oh, seriously? Yeah. <laughs> now, um, a professor from the, from the University of Utah, uh, Martha, 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 how do you pronounce Martha. <laughs> Martha Chester Martha Martha Bradley she wrote a book about Shorty Greg called uh, Kidnapped from the Land but and her point was though it was all just a smokescreen it was just the government's desire was to just to stamp out polygamy because it's offensive because we're all Judeo Christians and these little polygamists are yeah we don't like it well that's certainly what it was in the late 1800s it may well have been in the um, 1940s and 50s too but that uh totally backfired. Um, yeah. I, it probably destroyed the political career of the governor of Arizona. It was just a, a complete stain on his record, and I think uh, he it destroyed all of his future aspirations. Oh, yeah. He lost his bid for re-election in 1954 to the Democratic candidate, um, Ernest McFarland, and he blamed the fallout from the raid as destroying his, his political career. Absolutely. Um, he initially called the raid – he called it a momentous police action against insurrection, and he described the Mormon fundamentalists as participating in the foulest conspiracy you could possibly imagine that was designed to produce white slaves. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're concerned about the women, um, and I think <laughs> similar um, concerns were uh, – as a matter of fact, they didn't prosecute women under these anti-polygamy laws because women were seen as the victims – um, the, the only women who were ever jailed uh, in the 1800s, the 1880s, were women who refused to testify against their husbands, as is their constitutional right. But they, I believe they set up safe houses, like well-meaning individuals from back east came to Utah, set up safe houses for women to escape from polygamy, and they essentially went unused. <laughs> no one used them. It's just a total lack of understanding, I think, of the mindset. It's not it's not slavery. I suppose you could argue for brainwashing, right? But these men and these women believe that they're uh, following God's commandment. And, uh, uh, you know, it's. I don't think polygamy is a very easy lifestyle. From what I've seen from my relatives and the people I know, it, it essentially sucks to be a polygamist. you got to hide your lifestyle from friends and relatives, from your job at work. You, you're constantly under the threat of being fired. <laughs> you have these Short Creek raids looming in the, the back of your mind. And the, the recent uh, jailing, I think, of the fundamentalists uh, in the Texas raid, too. I mean, they did a very similar thing. They, they, there was a hoax police call to domestic services about some domestic violence, and it turned out not to be true. But based on that one hoax call, they went in and... Uh, separated dozens of children from their parents. Uh, can you think of any other community that would have happened where, say, they, they call in Taylorsville or Provo, Utah, about a guy down the street, and they go and they separate dozens of children from dozens of homes <laughs> based on one phone call? We have some weird fears against – I mean, well, maybe not weird, but uh, but there's like a heightened fear against polygamy. Whenever Whenever you hear somebody talk about gay marriage – the first thing they mentioned besides like, you know, soon people will be marrying sheep 
is that like <laughs> they, they always worse, go to that first. They'll or allow worse. polygamy. <laughs> right, they'll allow polygamy. And I tell you crap. what, I, some of that I think is um, just basic prejudice against the lifestyle, but some of it's rooted in the fact that it's very easy to change the law to allow gays to marry. You don't have to change any contractual agreements, no inheritance, no no hospital stuff. You All you have to do is remove obstacles and allow gays to participate in the same marriage that uh, heterosexuals, uh, straights, have always enjoyed. Right, in two consenting individuals. In order to allow polygamy, you would have to re-fucking-write all of the marriage laws. I mean, what are you going to do if a man and his uh, first and second wife die, but wives three through five are still alive? What goes to the kids? What goes to the wives? How do you how do you deal with that? How does inheritance oh, happen in a polygamous relationship? We have no mechanism for that. We'd it's have to rewrite chart. all of the laws from the ground up. So I can uh, from from that point of view, it would be a massive undertaking. And I think the polygamists, at least the ones that I know, recognize that. And so they're not fighting essentially for legalizing polygamy. They would be happy if it were just simply decriminalized. So they wouldn't have to worry about spending time in jail if they were caught being polygamous. Oh, if they'll stand with me on the pot issue, I'll stand with them on the polygamy. <laughs> they stand with the gays on the marriage issue. It's very humorous to go to a family gathering and hear my ultra right wing arch conservative family pushing for gay marriage rights. It's fucking hilarious. <laughs> Because they know. You've got to invite me to one of those. <laughs> if, it's, if it's seen as uh, acceptable to arrange contracts for marriage, then, um, the, you know, polygamy is the next step. Yeah, see I guess too. so. And then animals. Woo! And then finally, <laughs> sheep. Finally. Oh. Now, um, getting back to the short creek raid, Chuck. Yeah, so. Uh, so lots of negative media attention, right? Tons lots. of it. Tons of it. Even one so far is going to say the only American parallel is the federal actions against Native Americans in the 19th century, which I would call pushing it. I'm not (laughs) sure. (laughs) There was no uh, trail of tears for the polygamists. (laughs) But um, there there were a few media outlets that that supported the raid. Guess, Guess which one? Salt Lake Tribune. No. No. Well, maybe. Right. Um, <laughs> I didn't check on them, actually. Deseret News, the church uh, organ? Yes, the Deseret News, owned by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They applauded the action. They said it was a needed response to, to prevent fundamentalists from becoming a uh, a cancer of a sort that is beyond hope <laughs> of human repair. Jesus Christ. You fuckers. <laughs> But then later on, they editorialize um, support for separating children from their polygamous parents, and there is a huge backlash against the paper and the church um, by a number of LDS, uh, by a number of LDS saints, or whatever you call them. Uh, and they start to complain that the church was approving of basically cruel and wicked things of taking little children from their mother. So and it's that was the short parade. What's that? Obviously hypocritical for the church to be taking that stance a mere 60 years after they were fighting for the same freedoms that these polygamists are fighting for in the 50s. Extremely hypocritical for them to be uh, saying this. And, you know, even members of the church are are able to see this, right? They're not that far Right. So that Short Creek grade was uh, basically the last action against polygamous Mormon fundamentalists that's been actively supported by the LDS Church, the mainstream church. Yeah, because it was a massive public relations disaster for them. Yeah. <laughs> and that led to decades of just kind of turning the other uh, cheek and, and looking the other way when this stuff happens. Hey, you can't compete with, like, crying children ripped out of their you know mother's arms. That's that kind of news. That's just... Yeah, their mistake was taking press with them. <laughs> <laughs> that was a bad idea. So... Um, after that, the community eventually reestablished itself and was renamed Colorado City. They wanted to get away from, you know, the, the Short Creek name. So nobody faced any prosecutions for polygamous behavior, though, until the late 1990s. And that's when uh, they started to go after just individuals. And um, that's where we come to Warren Jeffs, which do we want to get into Warren Jeffs? You know what? Let's save Warren Jeffs for a future podcast. Yeah. And in a future podcast, I don't know if we'll do it. 
next, or we'll give Mormonism and fundamentalism a little break, come back to it later. But I'd like to pick up from there and go and, and trace it out through like the LeBaron group, the Lafferty group, the murders done under blood atonement, uh, and then Warren Jeffs and his fucking crazy, uh, craziness with the fundamentalist church and what ha- what's happened to that church after their raid in Texas. So we'll probably do that in a later podcast. Yeah, yeah. that sounds good. Awesome. Thanks, Matt. Hey, thanks for having me. And we'll see you guys whenever the fuck we decide to do another fucking podcast. Vagina! Excellent. Penis! Here I am.